So we're picking up, picking up where we left off. Let me, I got a bunch of guests or new people with us today, but where we left off last week, we've been working our way through the story of Acts. And Paul and his missionary journeys, he's done three missionary journeys around Asia, which is like, includes Greece and Corinth and uh, Ephesus and Lystra and different areas like that. And now he's back in Jerusalem and he's coming to confrontation with the Jews. And you go, well, well, if he was a Jew, why is he in confrontation? Because the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the confrontation. They're waiting for this superhero, this avenger, this person that's going to save them from persecution. And to them, Jesus coming in, born in a manger, riding in on a donkey from Nazareth, carpenter, didn't fit their vision of what the Messiah was supposed to be. For Paul, it was obvious Jesus was the Messiah. So now there's conflict between the Jews and Paul and those that are believers. Now, now granted, some of the Jews actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The apostles that hung around with Jesus were Jewish, and they believed, and some came to know Jesus as the Messiah as well. They were pretty much located in Jerusalem, where where they still kept the law, where the temple was, and they still had to go make sacrifices, like blood sacrifices. They were still obeying the law. Yet Jesus had already come, died on the cross, and his blood was poured out, and that was the ultimate sacrifice. You see the conflict? So Paul's like saying, okay, you don't need to do the old covenant anymore because now Jesus has ushered in this new covenant, and that's the blood that we're under. We're forgiven. And so he's constantly teaching this, although he made some kind of agreement with Peter and James and them in Jerusalem and said, hey, I know God's called me to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my thing. And I'll pretty much leave you guys alone here in Jerusalem and let you talk about Jesus here in your own way. He talks about that in Galatians. So now Paul has gone on these missionary journeys, collected this fund for the people in Jerusalem because they're oppressed and all the Gentiles have given to it. And he takes it back and everybody's warned Paul, don't go back there. And surely uh, Paul proceeds to go back to Jerusalem because the Lord led him there. So he goes back and he gets into this confrontation with the people and all he all he's doing is being Paul. Really, he's just walking around being Paul. He's not preaching in the temple. He's, he's, he's just being Paul. And they get to a point where, hey, you know, if you really want to prove that you're on our team, why don't you go pay for four of these men to be spiritually, ritually cleansed, and you as well. He's like, all right, I'll do that. I'll go along with that. I'm good. He had already done that before as a Pharisee, 
So he's now doing it just to say, I'm, I'm still with you guys. So he does that. He, he, he's just proving himself. And then they start accusing him all of a sudden of doing these things that he didn't even do. And they begin to like mob him. And all of a sudden the Roman soldiers come and they're like, hey, what's going on here? We like to keep the Roman peace around here between everybody. And they secure Paul. Like they rescue him from the Jewish mob that is attacking him. They take him up. Paul makes his speech. He presents the gospel one more time because that's just what Paul naturally does. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He came to die for your sins. Again, they begin to attack him, and the Roman soldiers rescue him, and then they decide, okay, we're going to take you to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish court. And he goes in there, and once again, he presents the gospel to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the high priest, Ananias. And Ananias actually strikes Paul on the mouth, which is like the greatest insult that you could ever give. Once again, the Roman soldiers come in and they protect Paul from the Sanhedrin. You just think about this for a second. If God sends Paul to Jerusalem and he's been warned, you're going to die there. And he goes, but every time he's protected by the Roman Empire. That's just the way God works. Really? The Roman Empire is going to protect Paul, not his Jewish brothers? who are attacking him. And so then we get to Acts chapter 23, verse 12. He's rescued him from the Sanhedrin, and it says, When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Basically, we're going to fast. We're going to fast until we kill Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now, think about this. At Paul's conversion, the Lord told Paul that he was going to (laughs) suffer. Like, he's he's told, by the way, he's told you that you're going to suffer too. I'm assuming that you're all in the same camp that I am, that we suffer, probably not like Paul, but we still suffer. But he also promised him that he's going to like protect him. If we go to Acts chapter 9, I'll, Paul, I'll deliver you from your, your enemies. So Paul really held on to that promise all of his life. He's like, I'll go to Jerusalem. You tell me I'm going to die, but God said that he's going to protect me from my enemies. In verse 15, it says, So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you're going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we're ready to kill him. Like, just bring him out one more time. Let us, we'll lynch mob him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. This is the only mention in the scripture of Paul's sister and his nephew. It's the only place that it's mentioned. Now, you think about back in verse 6, Paul said, I'm the son. He's trying to prove himself and his credibility, and he says, I'm the son of Pharisees. So his dad was a Pharisee, so obviously his sister, same dad, they've grown up in this Pharisee life. 
and she's in the know about what's happening. That's how she's kind of found out, you know, secretly that they're going to, like, lynch him. And they're like, go tell the commander, sends her son, Paul's nephew, to tell the commander. It says, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander, which is Claudius Lacerius, because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it that you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, they've agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him, deeper than the one they just did the night before. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed them. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. Now, if you go throughout the whole book of Acts right there, Luke does this incredible job of favoring the Roman soldiers, the Roman military officers. He never speaks badly about them. He just speaks directly about them. He goes back with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and ending with Julius in chapter 27, which we haven't got to. There's really no record uh, of official Roman persecution against the church in the book of Acts. Paul just doesn't talk, or Luke doesn't talk about it. So while the whole Roman Empire had this corrupt political opportunity for the most part, the military men were, were quality leaders. That's the way Luke portrays them. They're quality. So now he's getting ready to leave. Claudius comes up with this plan. He's like, okay, how, how do I protect Paul from this lynch mob now that this information's been shared with me? So he comes up with this simple but pretty wise plan. He's like, he knew that he had to get Paul out of Jerusalem and he had to get him out of there safely because if he didn't, because he was basically entrusted to him as a Roman soldier, and if he was killed by the Jews, then he would be liable for Paul's life. So now he's got to get him out of town. So he decides to send him to Caesarea, where the governor of Judea is Felix. He's Roman authority, and he says, I'm going to take him by night and get him to Felix. It's a smart plan. Verse 23, it says, He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. (laughs) Did you get this? Paul, a missionary. Two centurions. How many soldiers? 200. 200 soldiers with Paul. Oh, wait. Not just 200, but 70 cavalry. Calvary, 70 Calvary, 200 spearmen. We got like 470 men taking one man from Jerusalem 
to protect them. Are you serious? He says, also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. Now, think about that. If Paul had been the private citizen and attempting to travel from Jerusalem to Caesarea, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But now his life's in danger, so the commander's trying to figure out how to protect him. It says this in verse 25, he wrote the following letter. This is the commander. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man has been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations concerning questions of their law and there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. Now, I don't know if you noticed it right there, but that letter from the commander to the authority over him, the governor of Felix, he said, I, seven times in there. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Because I want you to see, one, how good I am, but I've done everything perfectly. Verse 29, you back up to that, it says, I found out that the accusations concerning the question of their law and there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. Again, this is an official Roman statement that's being made right here that considering that being a Christian is not a crime. It's not a crime. Paul claims that he's a Christian, but there's nothing wrong with that. Verse 31, it says, So the soldiers took Paul during the night, and they brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. Now, that's 37 miles away from Jerusalem. It's 65 miles to Caesarea. But in one night, that whole group of 470 men plus Paul, because they gave him a ride, covered 37 miles roughly. It says the next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the, the cavalry to go on with him. So get that. The 200 soldiers went back to the barracks in Jerusalem Remember where all this was happening beforehand? They went back there. But another 27 miles with the cavalry, and since this was the dangerous part of the trip was over, they felt like they could send the others back. So half of them went back. Verse 33, when these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Antonius Felix, he's now the governor of Judea. He was married to Drusilla, a Jewess who was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa's father was Herod who sought to kill Jesus. Her, her grandfather was the one that sought to kill Jesus. Think about that for a second. She was the sister of Herod Agrippa too. Felix was this, uh, he was kind of a rough guy. In fact, they called him a ruffian, vulgar dictator. 
he was the governor of Judea. And it says in verse 34, after he read it, he asked what province Paul was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. In Herod's palace. Herod the Great was one of the greatest architects of all time. He established palaces all over Asia. In fact, the one in Caesarea, we were there three years ago and we'll be there in a couple of weeks. Let me show you this little video right here. This is our group that was there in 2018. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And Jim David had his drone and flew out and zoomed out. And this was all Herod's, part of Herod's palace where Paul was kept. Now pause it right there. If you see at the top, the top of the screen there, it's really kind of cool because it's this whole area that's like cut out and the Mediterranean Sea fed into it and it was Herod's swimming pool. I mean, he used the Mediterranean Sea as his swimming pool. But you're only getting a a small glimpse of something that was 2,000 years ago. It's been restored and dug up and that's just partial. That's just partial. But the cool thing is, somebody asked me the other day, is like, how many of the sites that we go to in Israel do you actually know this is where it happened? I'd said probably about 20%. 20% that you actually know, we know this is where Paul was taken. To Herod's palace in Caesarea. You get to chapter 24, it says this. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down. Remember, you always come down from Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. You come down from Jerusalem. With some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, these men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, we enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. You always, as a lawyer, I know Charlie's here, as a lawyer, you always start with flattery. You start with flattery because you're trying to get the judge on your side. And so this is what this Jewish lawyer has done. He's gone into Felix and he's, he's flattering all the great things that you've done. But why did it take 470 men to get Paul to Caesarea? He may be flattering him, but he's flattering him with lies. There's still chaos in the land. And so he's actually lying to the judge. His flattery was worth about as much as his accusations that are to come. He says, But so that I will not burden you any further... I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world. That's accusation number one. The Jews wanted to keep their traditions, their laws, and everything else, and Paul was saying something that was different. 
And so it caused conflict. Not that it was wrong. It was just different. And then it says, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's accusation number two. He's now disturbing the Roman peace. If you're going to get the governor's attention, say, hey, it's not peaceful anymore. You know what happens if it's not peaceful here? You're not doing your job, and they're going to hear about it back in Rome, and you're going to be in for it. He then says, he even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. Accusation number three. They said that Paul brought this Gentile into the inner courts of the temple area where Gentiles are not allowed. And there's no proof of that. Paul didn't do that. They just made this, they saw him walking with Gentiles, but they didn't see him walk into the inner, inner courts of the temples. And it says, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to discern the truth about these charges we're bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. So now, when you compare the Luke's account of Paul's arrest, which is in Acts 21, two chapters before, with the captain's account that was in chapter 23 that we just read, and with the lawyer's account, you come up with like three totally different accounts of what's happened to Paul. This is what happens in the court systems. You have everybody's opinions and ideas, and it's like, who can, under, who can understand what has actually occurred because there's three different stories now? Well, if you're a Roman governor and you have a letter from one of your Roman commanders, I believe that he would have a tendency to, to believe that one first. Not from the Jewish lawyer or from Luke's account. Verse 10, it says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense what concerns me. All he does is he acknowledges Felix's service. You've been here a long time. He doesn't try to butter him up. He says, you can verify yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 12 days. So he that means when he got to Jerusalem, he spent one week there because it says in, they waited for Ananias to show up in Caesarea five days. He's like, it's been 12 days. It took Ananias five days to get here. So I was only in Jerusalem for a week. Verse 12, it says, they didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd either in the temple or either in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. As I said earlier, Paul Paul promised Peter and James and all the guys, I, this is your territory. I, I'm not going to do anything to disturb you. He says, neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But I admit to you, I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he's referring to, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law written in the prophets. Everything that Paul was teaching was perfectly in line with the Old Testament scripture. He taught history. He taught law. He taught prophecy. And then he taught the new covenant. He did. So everything that he, he believed, just like us, obviously 
we're spending a few years in the New Testament as we've gone through the gospel and now through Acts. It's been, I don't know how many years, and we haven't touched the Old Testament, but we teach the Old Testament here. I believe in the Old Testament because the Old Testament tells us about our God, how, how what's valued to God. It's important. But I'm not under the Old Covenant. I'm under the New Covenant. That's the biggest difference. And so now, uh, verse 12, it says, Neither they can prove the charges they are now making against me, but I admit this to you. I worship the God of my... I've already done that part, haven't I? Uh, Where are we? Verse 15. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. That's that Jerusalem offering that we're talking about. He went and gathered it up from the Gentiles, and he brought it back to Jerusalem to encourage them. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. You can go back to the temple records. I paid to be ritually purified along with four other men. It's there in the records. I've done everything right. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. To prove someone guilty, you have to have the person that experienced it or saw it there to prove them. But they're not even there to prove it. It's just people that are having hearsay talking to the governor. He says... Other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them, Today I'm on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. You remember he said the word resurrection, that he believes in resurrection, because you have the Pharisees and the, and the, and the uh, Sadducees that are part of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. The Pharisees do, and he knew if he said resurrection, he was going to get them into an argument like the Democrats and the Republicans. And that's exactly what happened, that he took the focus off of himself, and now they're fighting amongst themselves. And he's like, if that's what I'm guilty of, just saying that there's a resurrection, I believe in a resurrection, I'm guilty. Since Felix was well informed about the way the governor knew about Jesus, He adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. The commander never came down from Jerusalem. He never never showed up. He sent a letter, but he never came. He says he ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. If you remember, when he was coming back from the third missionary journey, he stopped in Caesarea, which is where he is now, and Agabus took his belt and tied him up, his hands and his feet, and said, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. So now he's back in Caesarea where Agabus was, his friend. And so literally the governor says, your friends can come hang out with you, your friends can come minister to you, your friends can come feed you, your friends can do all this at Herod's palace. Rough life. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's the Roman governor. He's got Paul in custody. Nobody's coming to condemn him. Nobody's coming to set him free. And he says, I'll listen to you. His wife like, I want to listen to Paul. I want to hear what he has to say. I, I'm familiar with Jesus. He says, now as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Paul's, Paul's got the, the governor of Judea, all of Israel, the Roman authority, as his captive audience, and he's speaking to him about righteousness. Felix, if you just believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you just believe he's the one that everybody's been looking for for thousands of years, the Messiah, if you just believe he'll take out your old sinful heart and he'll replace it with a new heart. He'll take your sinful nature and he'll totally get rid of it and he'll make you a new creation, which is holy, righteous, and redeemed. It says he spoke about his righteousness. Righteousness. Like when Jesus died on the cross, he came and he came to make you righteous. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. When I see you, I see righteousness. People will say all the time, well, I see Jesus and Chad, or I see Jesus and Kelsey. No, I see Chad as righteous. I see Kelsey as righteous because Jesus made them righteous because of the cross. And this is exactly what he's saying to Felix. If you just believe, you can be made righteous. You can be forgiven. All your sins forgiven, past, present, future. You have this holy living God, this Holy Spirit living inside of you, guiding you, directing. He's sitting there. Two years. Two years. I would call that discipling Felix. Discipling Drusilla. It says, Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now. But when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money so that he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. If Paul bribes Felix, he can bust him. Two years, Paul discipled Felix and Drusilla. Two years, Felix kept calling him in and hoping that he would bribe him. What does that lead you to believe about Felix's faith? I'm assuming that he didn't hear it. It says, so he sent for him quite often and Paul conversed with him. After two years had passed, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Two years, Herod's palace. Two years, he heard the gospel message. For many years, the Jews heard Paul's message. For many years, they rejected Paul's message. I sat here this morning with a mom in tears 
because of the journey that her kids have gone through spiritually. They heard the law. They heard the law. Most of us in this room have grew up with the law, right? In your household, learning the Ten Commandments and learning we're supposed to do things accordingly. And the the pre the pressure of that, the pressure of that and and trying to perform as a Christian to get up early because Jesus got up early and do your devotions and everything else and just this whole performance thing as a believer, as a Christian, and the pressure that's put on. And then uh I you know, I'm I'm guilty of teaching that. I'm guilty of teaching that for many, many years. Until about 2000, the year 2000. So for the last 22 years, I've seen things differently. And the pressure's off. And I tried to protect my, my own two children from what was being taught to them. Because the, there's obviously conflict here in the Scripture about what was and what is now. Old covenant, new covenant. And we, oh gosh, we sit in a community where there's still confusion about what's being taught. That, that you're, I'll, I'll say it, you're, you're truly free. You're free. Jesus came and he died and set you free. And that means you can do whatever you want. I said it. You can do whatever you want. But the more you know about my Savior, my Jesus, the more your behavior begins to line up with what's of value to him. And what he did to set you free. And my behavior begins to change and begins to line up more and more and more. I don't focus on my behavior. I focus on Jesus because I learned I can't change my behavior. He changes it for me. He, you got to get that. If you think you can work the system, that's what the whole covenant was, working the system. And he's like, you can't do it. You can't work the system. I, I'll go to the cross. I'll, I'll die. I'll send the Holy Spirit who'll come and live inside of you. And, and we got you. We got you. Now it becomes a trust factor, not only for me, but I have to trust the Holy Spirit in you. I see what you do. I, I'm not concerned about what you do as much as I am concerned about who you are and know who you are. I'm not concerned about your emotions, your happiness, your, I, I, that doesn't matter. If you figure this thing out, it all starts to line up. And this is part of the journey that we were talking about with this mom is like, they're on this journey. And if they can just figure out the freedom that Jesus has brought them in Christ, I, I think it makes it even greater once you've experienced that other side, holy cow, that. I'll never go back to that other side. I'll always teach grace, identity, freedom, and Christ here. Because it is 
the gospel. It's the good news. It's what Paul was all about. It's what he was teaching, the righteousness. It's not my responsibility to enlighten you. It's not my responsibility to make the Scripture come alive to you. It's the Holy Spirit's to do that. And today that's my prayer, is that you will see this for what it is. You'll see that you're free. You'll see that you're forgiven. You'll see that you're redeemed. You'll see that you're holy. You'll see that you're perfect. You have been made perfect. No matter what you've done, doing, or going to do, you've been made perfect. Jesus, I thank you for today. Thank you for Paul just never giving up, just teaching and teaching and teaching, even to his last days, that you came to set people free, that you absolutely have provided the good news for us. So thank you for his story. Thank you for his life. Thank you for all that you've done for us in this room right here. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.